Hey homies, it's Liz. This is Brandon. And you're listening to Ain't That Something Podcast. A tripod production. Ryan Little. <laughs> so everybody, welcome back. This we're towards the end of season three, and we are here with our university president. You might know him as uh, President Fry, but to us and to everybody else, he's John. What's going on, John? How are you? Good to see you guys. Thanks for asking me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, our main reason of having you on as our very special guest today is that a lot of people see you as President John Fry, our university president, but don't really get the chance, especially now during COVID, um, to get to know you as just John Fry and who you are as a person and not just the person, the figure of Drexel University. So we want to start to get to know you with some fun little icebreakers just to lighten the mood here. We have some very serious questions to ask you. (laughs) Um, The first one being the all-important debate of pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Never. Never? Never? Have you ever tried it? I can't make myself do that. I grew up up in Queens, New York and uh, surrounded by a bunch of old-fashioned pizzerias and they never would have brought a pineapple into those pizzerias i mean i i can agree with you there's a lot of hometown pizza shops where i'm from as well and uh if you even mention about having pineapple on pizza they'll just tell you to get out and <laughs> what, mm-hmm. uh, what, have you ever had margarita pizza before yes and and for my and for my um 60th uh birthday which was in the middle of covid i um i actually uh mark vetri is a is a good friend and so um i asked him to make a special pizza for me which is called a bonac pizza b-o-n-a-c bonakers are um the sort of citizens of the east end of long island where we we spend time and um it, it was i guess some sort of a term that described locals and they made their pizzas with seafood and so he made me a big bonac pizza which was absolutely out of this world incredible shrimp and clams and lobster and all sorts of goodies so that's my favorite pizza not with pineapple don't knock until you try it on the topic of food what is the weirdest thing you have ever eaten um i've had all sorts of really um crazy game dishes you know elk and all sorts of other sort of exotic animals which i have to admit i love but that's probably the weirdest stuff i've eaten uh i've I'm from the like my family's from the Philippines. So like we'll go home every uh, we'll go up, going home, but we'll go there every couple of years. And they have this street food called balut. I don't know if you've ever oh, heard I of can't it. Do that. And essentially, it's an, it's an egg with a like a bird egg, but the bird is like still there. It never it never reached like birth. So like it's basically just the, like the it's the bird, but none of the bones solidified in with it. So what like you have to eat the bird and you have to like eat the egg, but it's the worst thing I've ever had in my life. And you have to chase it with a hot pepper. It's horrible. I never recommend. I haven't had the pleasure of that. Uh, what do you call it a pleasure? It's uh, more of a night. <laughs> For me, I'm Vietnamese too. So we had like just Southeast Asian culture has a lot of weird food. But um, one of the things that are typically like used in like our broths is ox blood. And they, they're like in cubes. So oh. I've had that. I 
it's me back week, like my weirdest. <laughs> Next is what kind of music are you into or do you listen to any podcasts? Obviously, besides this one. <laughs> <laughs> is, is John uh, bumping uh, Wu-Tang Clan and bands like that or what kind of music are you into? You know, I, I, I still listen to the music I li- listened to in college, like Jackson Brown and, you know, Cat Stevens and things like that. And I, I ride Peloton every day. So I just listen to a lot of music on Peloton, depending on who the instructor is. I'm getting I'm getting a, a, a sort of a broad range now of things that are actually really terrific that I hadn't listened to, you know, previously. But I kind of like my old favorites. Do you listen to podcasts more? at all? You know, I normally don't because my routine is that, you know, when I have a little bit of, of downtime, when I'm driving back and forth um, to work, I, I'm on the phone the entire time. My, my my kids do, and they've encouraged me to do it. And I think this summer, when I drive back and forth to New York to see them on the weekends, I'll, uh, I'll probably end up doing a lot of podcasts because those rides are like four or five hours at a time. If you want to knock out like four or five hours of the podcast, Joe Rogan is your go-to. Um, he just get you know Joe Rogan, right? Uh, he has this podcast called the Joe Rogan Experience, and he has like he's had like Edward Snowden on there. He's had uh, Elon Musk on there, and they go on for like four, five, six hours. It's never ending, but you'll leave with like your brain numb because it's just so much content at one time. I, I I definitely will do that. Awesome. Do you have any hidden talents? I'm a man of very few talents, unfortunately. <laughs> the biggest talent is my capacity to take punishment and to work hard. <laughs> We appreciate that. Definitely. But is there any, are there any skills you would like to learn or any hobbies you would like to pursue in the future? Maybe when you're a little less busy. <laughs> I don't have any plans to ever stop working, but my, my wife would not, would not be happy with that. No, we have a lot of interests and a lot of things that we do. It's just not enough time to be able to do them. And so, you know, we have, we have a garden we've worked really hard on. We restored a house and, you know, we're, we're, constantly working in that garden and i mean that that gives me a lot of um a lot of joy and a lot of exercise and so just sort of more of what we're doing you know we're always you know involved in projects at home different things that we're doing and um i would just like to do more of it i would just wish there were more hours in the day what do you plant in your garden we like um we have a perennial garden we do some annuals but for the most part we're we're very focused on you know sort of perennials and we're constantly moving things around and um, it's not it's not big, but it's it's nice. And, and we also have certain colors that we like um, to sort of draw on a lot of there's a lot of purple. There's a lot of blue. There's a lot of white. There's a lot of gray. And, you know, we're constantly digging new beds and planting new perennials and moving things around. And um, it's 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 a really nice way to spend you know, a weekend when you have the time. Gardening as a whole is an amazing hobby. So I'm all I'm all for that. You said you restarted your house. That's absolutely crazy. I can't restore my uh, I can't even restore my bedroom, let alone a house. Well, we didn't do it ourselves, but we, we own a, an old uh, house, and um, it was actually owned. It was built by the the person who was the founder of the Pennsylvania Railroad, Alexander Cassatt, and um, it, it, he he basically named the main line because the the railroad went right from through Montgomery County into into Philadelphia, and so uh, our house is right down the street from the train station and that's where he built his his house and it was the old gatehouse to his big estate and so it was built in the 1860s and we've we've renovated it and uh it's uh it's it's a great house we have one more icebreaker for you um and it's a really important question so just be ready cat or dog cat or dog 
Yes. Yeah. Well, we have both. We have two black cats. <laughs> and unfortunately, our dog Piper passed away a number of years ago. She was almost 14. She was a rescue. But uh, my daughter, Mia, who's our oldest daughter, um, just got um, a lab called Winnie. So we're, we're sort of grandparents to Winnie right now. And I think that that has gotten my wife thinking that maybe we should we should try to get another dog. We miss Piper, but the cats are about 11 years old now. And so um, I think it's time for us to explore owning a dog again. So we'll probably end up doing that in the fall, I think. Oh, we, I love dogs. I, I wish I could just like live on an island full of dogs or like adopt all the dogs that people don't want. And I'd be completely okay with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I'm a little biased because I'm allergic to cats. So I can't really. <laughs> yeah. so, our, our, our cats are, um, they're called puppy dog cats because they're extremely social. And it's, um, I forget the, I forget the breed, but they call them puppy dog cats. So these cats, we, I come in the house and they're all over me. Um, they're, they, they love to be held and carried around and chased. And uh, they're the most social cats I've ever seen. So John, you've been president of, Uni- of Drexel for since 2010, correct? Around that time? 2010. How does one become the president of an entire university like this because it's it's rather large compared to a lot of other schools um well i think the traditional path is um is a person will become um a professor go on the tenure track become tenured become maybe a department chair or a dean or a provost and then eventually ascend to a presidency that's that's the that's the typical path in higher ed um i actually was a partner in a, in a consulting firm so i wasn't on any path to become a president and um you know back in 1995 i was asked by the president of penn uh, who I was doing um, a major project for um, as a consultant to become her COO. Um, and so I transitioned from partner and consulting firm to being the COO of a university, University of Pennsylvania. And I did that uh, for a number of years. And then um, Franklin and Marshall College called me and they were looking for someone who had a sort of a non-traditional background, uh, didn't, didn't necessarily um, think that they had to hire an academic, uh, wanted to see if they could hire someone with di- a different kind of experience. And I was lucky enough to get that job. And so I went from from uh, Penn to Franklin and Marshall and I was there for eight years. And then I think Drexel also wanted someone who, um, you know, I, I think Drexel was, uh, focused on trying to find someone who could succeed uh, President Papadakis, who was a larger than life entrepreneur and, you know, institution builder. And I, I guess in the end, they concluded that someone with my kind of background would be most suitable to follow him. So I was, that's, that's when I came to Drexel in 2010. So, you know, mo- most people who do what I do work their way through the professor um, um, before they become administrators. And in my case, you know, I, I, I've sort of came at it from a different way. And, and that seems to be actually more of a trend right now. I mean, I can see how it could be beneficial from being like, coming from an outside field because I feel like people that are inside, uh, like the academic world, might be a little bit too invested into it. So like they might be doing things of how like they wanted it to be done the entire time as opposed to like, what is the actual right thing to do? Does that make sense? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with what's the situation the institution finds itself in and what kind of leader is appropriate. And I think there are times when it is fully appropriate to have someone who has a huge academic background, uh, who can inspire faculty because of their own work. And then there are other times where you need someone who um, maybe comes at it from a, a, a very different perspective, maybe more from a business perspective, maybe more from a partnership 
partnership perspective, which is a lot of the work that I've done, you know, forging alliances, building partnerships. And so I think it sort of depends where the institution is. You have to meet the institution at the moment. And, you know, you can't sort of impose your own worldview on an institution. You have to see what the institution needs and then do your best to sort of support it so it, it, it achieves, you know, all that it's capable of. What is the biggest thing you have learned as president of several universities compared to your old job of being with the firm. That it's a, a lot more complicated than it looks. So it, it's one thing to interview people and do analysis and assessment and develop recommendations and tell your client what they need to do. That's not uncomplicated. It, it was actually a very hard job, but it is uh, it pales in comparison to actually then taking the recommendations and getting things done. And so um, I, I, I thought I had a hard job when I got to Penn in terms of just doing the consulting project for them. I had no idea what it was in store for when I became the executive vice president. Uh, that, that's when that's when the hard work really began. But I would never trade it because it's so much more fulfilling to be able to take an idea and actually see its manifestation either in people or in you know buildings or in whatever else you're you're working towards. And so, it's 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 a lot harder to actually negotiate the implementation than it is to think about what the idea is. That's crazy. Uh, that's I don't think I'd be able to manage that transition from being a consultant to managing an entire university like i'm just getting chills thinking about that like it's uh, just thinking about the transition going from student to the professional field uh, in the next couple couple months and it's it's really scary so like you did that and it seemed like the way you explained it very flawlessly so i it wasn't it wasn't flawless it was really hard i had a gigantic learning curve and i i spent a lot of years climbing up that curve a right, question that we have for you is uh a lot of stuff happens on university campuses, uh, whether it be COVID-19 or issues with different things. How do you uh, go about like addressing a, situa- a situation or what goes through your mind when you have to make a decision that impacts the whole university? Well, I think I think there are sort of three things. The first and the most important is you always have to think about the impact on people, you know, students and faculty and, and professional staff, neighbors, alumni you, you have to you have to understand what's the impact going to be and what are the choices among them and especially if they're difficult choices how do you sort of mitigate the impact so that's the first thing the second thing is that you have to be really good about getting advice especially when you know some of the advice you're going to get is not necessarily what you want to hear but it's important to air out all points of view. Um, and then the third, I think, is is to do it quickly. That there are certain circumstances where you know the best you can do is gather 80, 85 percent of the information, and to wait to get to 100 uh, percent, it may not ever occur, and the time for a decision may have passed. So I think it's a mix of being thorough in in getting people's you know viewpoints, but also knowing when to pull the trigger on those decisions. And that's hard because there are times where you have to make decisions where you don't have perfect information. In fact, it could be very ambiguous. But as long as you understand, you know how this might impact people. You know you've reached out as many good advisors as you can, and then you've done it within a reasonable time frame. Is 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 the way I approach these things. And you, as a as a the president of the university, you have a lot of people on your team that are there to help you whenever you need them. Correct. Yes, and, and they're on my team and they're throughout the faculty and they're on my board of trustees. I, I have a lot of circles of people um, 
you know, who I talk to. Some of them are people I've known for years and years from Penn, you know, uh, from before in my consulting days, other university presidents who are my friends. And so I, I've, I've, I have a wide network of people. I was on the phone last night with another university president who at one point had worked at Drexel and I was getting advice from him because I knew he knew something about something that I'm, I'm wrestling with right now. And so I never, I never hesitate to reach out. And um, I, I think, frankly, it shows sort of strength when you know that you don't know the answer and you can tell people honestly, I'm not sure and I need your help. And I think that that's, <laughs> I, I spent a good part of my day trying to get people to help me think about things. Uh, in, uh, in school, they always, in class, they always manage to uh, stress the importance of networking. So it, I, we can see that used practically with you and your situation right now. Networks are really important. Networks and partnerships, you can't have enough of them. And the more people you know, um, the better off you are. The more favors you do for people, uh, the better off you are because once in a while, if you need a favor from them, you find that people are there for you. And so you can't, you can't network enough. So it sounds like being a president is a very hefty job. How do you go managing your work and your home life? As, especially since you man, since you said that you, you don't have enough time to do a lot of things. So like it must be hard to balance both, right? Well, I mean, so we have three kids and I think our our my wife's name is Kara. So Kara and I, I think early on realized that, you know, these jobs were going to be hard, but um, th there was no way we we're going to let work overtake our relationship and our kids and the importance of spending time with them. And so, you know, she's been my partner the entire time. I always say that these jobs are two person jobs. They're not one person jobs. And so um, incredibly lucky to have Kara. And we've always prioritized our kids and we've always f tried to figure out how we're, we're there all the time for them. And they know that, but they also know that we have sort of demanding work. And so we, we, I think we balance it really well and um, it's, it's worked out great, but you know, it, it was always the, the first people we sort of put as priorities were always our children in whatever situation we were. And I, I remember having a wonderful job opportunity before I went to Franklin and Marshall uh, in another part of the country. And it was like kind of a job, you know, a dream job. And uh, as we got to know the area that we would live in, it became very clear that the schools, the K through eight schools were completely subpar. And so we walked away from what would have been a great job because I wasn't gonna let my kids go to schools that, you know, didn't really sort of have the, the quality and the resources that they deserve. So you, you're, you're always in situations like that and you always have to keep your family you know, first and, and the job stuff you, you work through. So I do have one question. Um, uh, this, is not, this is just like a broad statement. So across a lot of universities, everywhere you go, uh, Greek life happens to be an issue, uh, whether it be sometimes they're in the news for different things, whether it be good or bad. How do you go about handling issues that arise from that? Like, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy, especially people that are in, in the Greek life. So what, how do you go managing that? Well, I, I think the operative word is managing that you don't allow things just to occur. You manage them. And so, you know, I, I at, at Franklin and Marshall and, and, and now at Drexel, um, I've worked with Greek organizations. And what I found uh, in my experience is that the best way is to develop very, very clear structures in place that allow the administration and, and the Greek organizations to really spend a lot of time with each other to work very closely together to make sure they're on the same page and to sort of, you know, make it clear what the accountabilities are, you know, both for, you know, um, events and the condition of houses and the way in which people treat each other and to be very clear and very explicit what those accountabilities are. And then occasionally when things go wrong to act on that.
that and not to not to allow things to sort of occur and then look the other way. And what, one of the things that I, I've, I've done here a number of years ago is we commissioned a, an outside firm to take a look at the, you know, the, the sort of status of Greek life um, at Drexel. And it pointed out a lot of strengths and it pointed out a lot of weaknesses. And we've been working through and addressing the recommendations from that study. And I think it's improved what we're doing with our Greek organizations right now. I've also learned that the, the alumni associations of, of the fraternities and the sororities are very, very important groups to work with as well. And so we've spent a lot of time with our Greek alumni because they have a significant amount of, of, of influence over you know the behavior of, of the of the various uh, Greek organizations. And so I, I think you treat it as part of your overall residential life system, like you would manage your residences on campus, like we would manage our relationships with ACC. The Greek life system becomes part of that. And you know everyone's talking to one another and you're doing your best to sort of you know invest and to help and support, but you're not at, at all um, in a situation where if something happens, you're gonna just sort of excuse terrible behavior. You need to hold people accountable and you need to at, at times do difficult things that are gonna get people upset with you and so be it. Tons of the job, right? It's a it's an important part of the job. And we we have we're we're lucky here because we have a we have a great student life organization, Sabir Sahu leads that and they spend a lot of a lot of time on this, Katie Zamaliski and um, and her team. And I think we have a great relationship with our Greek organizations and and the time we've been at odds, you know, uh, we we've had to take difficult steps. I think everyone understood that we were sort of just playing by the rules. You have to do what you got to do to make sure that you keep your students safe, yourself safe, and your university safe. So speaking of students, is there anything that most students don't know about you that you would like them to, whether it be just about your role as president or just about you yourself? Well, I think there's always a sort of um, kind of a sense of mystery. Are, are these real people or not? I have three kids, so you can ask them. Um, I think I'm a pretty normal person, you know, a normal dad. Um, I'm around all the time. Um, you know, I correspond with students all the time, as we have. I, up until COVID, I had office hours on a regular basis. There was no appointment. People could just show up, you know, and have a chat. And I end up getting very involved in a lot of student things. But, you know, I'm, I'm not also the kind of person who's do goofy things for the sake of it, you know, dress up or whatever. And that's not sort of who I am. And so, you know, some presidents love that stuff. It's, it's very kitschy and it's, it's very fun and it it suits their personalities. And I'm frankly more comfortable as a problem solver. I want students to, you know, come to see me and say, look, I have this problem or look, I have this really great idea and I need some money or I need some space or I need some help from the administration. And that's where I feel like I, my strength is in interacting with students when I can work with them on things that they really care about and they really need help with and I'm, I'm accessible to them at all times same with same with franklin or marshall same office hours same kind of approach and so um that that's that's sort of my mo and that's something we can really respect especially when we originally came up with the concept of uh, interviewing you for our podcast we were on a three-day burnout because we recorded seven episodes in three days for our season two so we we're like we need something like really positive to get up to kick off our season three to the, for a good thing for season three and then Liz was like, let's do President Fry. And so we shot you this, we just shot our shot and we sent, sent you this email. And we didn't like, because we know you're busy and like it's the universe, it's COVID-19. So we didn't think that you would reply to us, but you replied back to us literally less than three hours later via email. So it's like, you're very accessible. Um, and I think I just want students to know that like, if you do have a question or if you do want him to help you out with something, send an email. What's the worst you can do? Say no. Exactly. And then 
when we get back, I'll have office hours again, and I'll be able to you know sort of see people in person, which will be so much better. And I think that's really nice to announce too, because I feel like a lot of students don't realize how accessible you are. Even us, we didn't realize how accessible and how quick to and responsive you would be. And I remember during my freshman year, like. Um, one of my roommates saw you on campus and you like held the door open to her and they were telling me about it and saying like you're some sort of kind of celebrity and now to know that you're actually very accessible it's just very heartwarming that you're so involved with the students. Well that's the, the the joy of the work is is to be able to interact with students because you know we have so many other issues that we have to deal with but um, to, to work with students is by far and away the best aspect of the job. Is there any memorable moments that you've had that you remember that with a student? I have two, and they're they're sort of very similar with different people doing different things. So I, I think, do you guys know Evan Ellers? He, he does the sharing access program. Oh, okay. oh yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, I remember when he came to see me to sort of explain what he was doing, and it was just like, this is, I remember thinking, this is sort of why I wanted to be a president of a university in the first place is because you get to work with great people like Evan and you know what he wanted to do in terms of helping people but doing it in a sort of a typically Drexel entrepreneurial way where he just sort of scrapped resources together got people to volunteer and the next thing you know they're feeding a ton of people and I you know he kind of he kind of sort of embodied all that is you know, right about the Drexel student and then more recently I, I met up with um, uh, Krishna Benagala who is a custom design major she's graduated graduating this year and she has a program that uh, she's working on called Impactive and again another sort of big social entrepreneurship program and so we, we've never met each other in person we, we've just done you know um, zoom watching her go after what she's trying to do which is you know, really trying to change the world and it just reminds me that uh, the best thing about Drexel students is that they're really humane people who actually want to get things done too and are not going to just you know um, lament things but are going to try to you know change things and I think you know with with uh, with Evan and with Krishna and with so many others you know we have those students all over the place what you guys are doing is great and that's that's really again that's the joy of the work is to support guys like you thank you that just means a lot to me it's a we are a huge university and sometimes students we feel like really like that's insignificant but small because there's a thousand and one other things going on at one time so it just, it's just good to know that you're on everybody's radar, like we're on your radar and things like that. So Drexel itself as a university is very unconventional, especially compared to other ones around us. We're a very practical school focused on like career and just with our co-op system. So I'm sure that your experience as a president here compared to Penn or Franklin Marshall is very different. So what's your favorite aspect about being president of Drexel compared to those schools? Well, it, it, I, I think it actually, it's interesting, you know, the Penn kids that I dealt with and the FNM kids were great, but when I would interact with them, they would come to me and tell me what was wrong with the institution and you need to fix it. And, and it, it is a very distinct experience dealing with Drexel students because Drexel students will come to me and tell me what's wrong and then they'll tell me how they're going to fix it. It's a, it's a very, it's a very different um, experience. I noticed it right away. People would come to office hours and say, you know, this really isn't what it should be. And they had a critique. And then usually the critique was very fair, but but then their ask was give us the resources so we can help fix this, or let's work together to fix this. Not you know I'm your customer and I demand that you fix it, but I'm your colleague. Let's work together to fix it. And it's been it's very very consistent. And a lot of it I, I attribute to co-op. 
Uh, the Drexel students always seem to me from the very beginning more mature because they've had work experience, much more practical and much more willing to say, look, you know, here's the problem, but here's the solution. And it, it, it's been it's been great. And I think a lot of the progress we've seen at this institution and we've seen a lot has to do with the fact that people are, are not afraid at all of critiquing what we're doing, especially when it's not going well, but also very much sort of engaged in the process of fixing things. And I think our students have been at the forefront of that. And so I, that, that's the difference. It's a, it's a very clear difference for me in terms of dealing with a Drexel student and dealing with other students. So Drexel students tend to come out with a lot of big accomplishments that's big, big and due in large part to the professionalism and co-op experience that you were just talking about. What I want to know is, what is the greatest accomplishment that you've had as a person? I mean, you've, you've become president of universities and you have this amazing family and then you were on a consulting firm. But like, what is it like if you had one biggest, biggest accomplishment out of them all, what would it have been? Uh, being a good dad. Being a good dad. Oh, <laughs> we love that. that is, that's a great answer. All right. So we have one last question for you. What's more, it's a, it's a double hitter. So you just got to bear with me really quick. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It's funny. A lot, a lot of things have been lived experiences for me. And over time, it's, it's sort of accumulated into sort of, you know, self-advice and wisdom. So I, I, I'm not sure I can recall a moment when someone told me something where I would say that advice changed my life. But um, it, it's it's the sort of accumulation of a lot of experiences where all of a sudden you say, yes, this is the way to, this is sort of the way to do things. One example, for example, is when you're when you're doing when you're doing this kind of work, there's a sense you're doing it with your institution and you're doing it with your own resources. And I probably got I can't remember who from, but I probably got a you know good advice early on that look, you, you can you can try to do everything yourself or you can try to rely on on partners to help you do it. And I think that's been sort of so burned into my head now. There's barely anything I do here where there's not partners involved. And that 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 that's the advice I would give is that you know as we talked about before, form networks, build partnerships, be relentless in cultivating those, use them as much as possible. And also for every one time you ask a favor, do 10 favors. Things over time then will become easier. People will rush to you to help you when you need help. They'll want to be your partner because they know you're a good partner in return. And, you know, you're you're constantly infusing new perspectives into the institution because you have such a big network of, of organizations and people that you're working with on the outside that can be born that, that can be brought to bear on problems that you're dealing with internally. And so that's a very long answer to a, a question, but I, I, I don't remember a thunderbolt of advice that I've ever gotten that changed my world. But I think through long accumulated sets of experiences, I've learned that it's not one person who makes a difference, it's teams that make a difference. That's amazing. Like that was, that's really good, really yeah. good advice. So our last one for you, I promise this is our last one. I know you're a very busy man, so we don't wanna, we don't wanna keep, you, keep you any longer. We want you to enjoy this beautiful day that's going on outside. When you move on, what do you wanna be remembered for? I wanna be remembered for what I said in 2010, when I came to the university at convocation was my first public address. And I, I said right away, literally like the second or third sentence, you know, my aspiration is that Drexel University should be the most civically engaged university in the United States. So when I leave, I would like to have our, at least our community uh, know and believe based on the facts as well as many others that in fact, that statement in 2010 actually just wasn't, you know, part of a speech and a, a bunch of rhetoric. It was a solemn, you know, commitment that this kind of civic work that we do would be embedded in our mission and would be a big part of, of you know, the, the work that I led here. 
and I think we're on our way is the best I would I would say. I can't I can't tell you we're there. I'm not even sure you have to get there, but we're on a we're on a really good and meaningful path. And so that that to me would be the most important thing I would leave behind here. And I think that's really important and good that coming from you as the president, someone who's very like from our conversation, I can tell focuses on like what you've just been networking and creating partners because a big part of being civically engaged is community engagement. And so being able to build the connection between Drexel and West Philly and our community to have civically engaged students is really important. Thank you. Well, it's great to talk to you guys. I've really enjoyed it. And then, um, you know, just looking forward to continuing the conversations and hopefully meeting you in office hours one day. I totally agree. Thanks for listening and see you guys next time. Later, bros.